Hey guys, welcome back to Ride the Gray. Or if this is your first time, thank you so much for joining us. Today, Travis and I are going to dive into the topics of differential learning and how to use noise to actually strengthen a signal. Now, if that sounds counterintuitive, don't worry, we'll explain. You might want to grab a piece of paper and a pencil, though. This one is definitely going to go lateral. Either way, we're so glad you're with us. Welcome to Ride the Gray a podcast about lateral thinking in which we actively seek new ways to learn about complex and dynamic systems. Thanks for listening. Let's dive right in. Uh, So Trav, we actually got some feedback from one of our listeners that uh, we never actually introduced ourselves on the first episode. So let's quickly go back and for the sake of whoever's, you know, listening and, and wants to tune into this, just quickly introduce ourselves and, and maybe why our reasons for why we wanted to do this podcast in the first place. I'll start and then I'll throw it over to you. So I'm Allie Kirshner. I'm a sports performance coach at Stanford University. I work with women's basketball and women's golf. How about you? Uh, and I'm Travis Knight and I'm over here at Gonzaga University, a little further north, and I work exclusively with men's basketball. Do you want to go into what we're doing, why we're doing this? Yeah, so I have always had this interest in lateral thinking, mostly because in conversations with my parents, my friends, and other people in my general community in the Silicon Valley, I've more often than not found solutions to issues and problems that I'm having in my own domain outside and with alternative thinking and other frameworks and other methodologies. So I had this interest in seeing if there were ways to talk about, read about, and also speak with individuals who are at the top of their game, and then hopefully apply it back to to my setting. And Travis, in talking to you, we were both interested in this same topic. So we were having these conversations anyway, and figured might as well record them and see where it goes. Yeah, I love it. And I think we uh, we're both thinking uh, laterally. I think we're both thinking independently in a lot of ways. And um, that's something I had to do in my process because we didn't have all the same resources of those we were trying to compete with. So we had to think outside the box and that fit really well with uh, my style of learning and my style of thinking. And so here we are, we're having these conversations about what we have previously discovered, but also what we're newly discovering, which, uh, includes differential learning, right? Yeah. I was going to say, speaking of learning, today's topic is something called differential learning, which was a concept created by a man named Wolfgang Schulhorn. I'll let you introduce him. Uh, yeah. So Dr. Wolfgang Schulhorn is the creator of differential learning systems. And when he was uh, younger, he was an athlete. He was a over in Germany, he was participating in many sports and even, I believe, competed at the Olympic level. But he actually changed a few times what sport he was uh, competing in. And then, like many of us, he went from being a, an athlete to a coach. And so he coached uh, many athletes who had success. And then from there, what he's doing now is he uh, began to study physics, biomechanics, uh, a bit of pedagogy and motor learning. And so that's what he's recognized for now. And so uh, he is over uh, in Germany and uh, doing work, putting out papers like what we've been reading recently um, and has been 
recognized internationally for his work uh, in biomechanics for differential learning. So jumping off of that, I think it, we should probably just start with a brief general definition of what differential learning is and maybe how that compares to the classical models of learning. Classical being what we have usually consumed when we're in school. It's the traditional model, even in our field, I think, in terms of trying to practice a certain skill, repetition after repetition, until that skill is perfect. And there's not a whole lot of variation within that skill. Differential learning takes it to the other end of the spectrum, right? This is a theory based on repetition without repetition. And I think it's interesting because. It makes sense. If you consider like how many possible disruptions and variations and variables go into a skill that you're about to perform, it's very clear early on that you can't execute the same skill exactly over and over and over again. And since you're not going to ever perform an identical movement twice in a match or a game or a set, but rather have to constantly adapt to your dynamic environment, why would you practice the same rep over and over again? Why wouldn't you utilize drills and practice methodologies that are going to purposely introduce variability into your environment, right? So differential learning is all about differences between attempts or repetitions, variability, and then being able to distinguish between signal and noise and the boundary between those. So you're going to tell us more about signal and noise, right? Uh, yeah. So the, the definition of signal, I don't have one thought on that necessarily, uh, but it is, it is like a pattern, right? And, um, Noise is more the difference between uh, things that don't necessarily look like the pattern or belong with the pattern. The, the image for signal that I was thinking about was, I remember reading that Michael Crichton wrote a lot of his books while he was in med school, or he was essentially writing, uh, commuting to work on the bus or the, or the subway or the train. And he would just write everywhere uh, when he had free time. And I was thinking that if he were if we see like recording his thoughts down on paper writing as the signal and, or we sometimes would, would call it a skill that if he's so focused on the writing action, he would not be able to think and actually keep the story going in his mind. So he had to have a proficiency of being able to write. And I'm imagining that there's stopping, starting, bumping. There's all these little uh, noise going on as he's writing. And, um, for us, if, if we thought about just the simple act of writing on a piece of paper and then we have to change the pen to a bigger or a Sharpie pen from a fine-tipped pen, or the surface goes from being um, on my desk to being having to write using my knee as a background, or um, you know, if you've ever written at a chalkboard, I swear when I started doing some adjunct teaching, it was the hardest thing to get used to being that close to what you're writing and writing that big. And then I, I just couldn't believe how many spelling mistakes I'd have or how much I'd lose my train of thought. And so, you know, the signal is just writing, but it takes so many different forms that you still need to be able to execute effectively. And if you can't handle a certain variation, um, all your attention goes into writing and not actually thinking about what you want to write. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. So also with included within noise is a subset of information, which we would call error information that does not necessarily belong in that ultimate signal, but that we introduce into the system. So I guess the main key takeaway from these definitions so far is that noise and error are not synonymous, but they're also not negative terms. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Uh, for sure. So you were, you were kind of going around the idea that, that signals have boundaries and what's inside the boundary is considered the signal and what's outside the boundary um, is not just considered noise, it's actually considered error. And so noise is being thrown at a signal in a way that fundamentally destabilizes that signal. So we've said skill is a, is a good idea that represents a signal. And so when we're doing a skill, we usually would start uh, like our sport in basketball, that it's uh, not involving defense. It's not involving gameplay. It's a very um, controlled environment. And then we would apply that later as we felt like we had competency and a pretty strong signal. We would apply that in a more chaotic dynamic situation or essentially add noise. And usually what happens is that we see um, a, a decrease in the skill level or at least a regression when that happens because we're, we've fundamentally destabilized that skill. And we've, we've said it tolerates in some ways, it doesn't tolerate in others. And, and what's cool is you, you said earlier, I think um, maybe you said it, maybe you didn't, but the error has the ability to strengthen a signal. And part of that is because in the destabilization process, you can recognize what didn't tolerate the noise well, or what part of the noise should be added to the signal, to the skill. What should I be able to do that I didn't do well? And as I add that new information, I actually, um, what, what comes to mind for me is we talk about how you break down the body so that, um, you know, you, you kind of do these little micro tears in the muscle so that when it repairs, it doesn't just go back to the state it was, it actually improves because it becomes more resistant to those micro tears and, and injury. Uh, when we destabilize a skill, as we put it back together, we actually put it back together a little bit better and stronger and more resistant to the same error if we're learning, right? The classical model of learning would either say error is bad, we should try to eliminate error at all costs, or it would say, okay, let's dive in on that error and show them, hey, this is the error. Let's, this is what we don't want, right? So that we have something to contrast to the ideal, the non-error. Differential learning actually goes completely the opposite end and says that not only do we want to dig in on error, we want to keep doing that. We want to find even more errors. We want to just error, 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 error. What, what's, what's your thought on that? Where do you lie on that spectrum? Well, that's, that's a... I think that crosses a lot of domains. I think as people listen, if they're not in our field, they may resonate with um, this idea because there's a lot of people out there who try to project that they understand things um, or that they're expert. Maybe this goes back to our last podcast, but um, because of the lack of error in their thinking or the lack of error in what they um, 
are putting out publicly, right? That they're never wrong. They're always right. And I think that's a dangerous place because errors show us that there's more to learn. They show us that there's room to grow. They show us and they continue to move us forward um, in, a, in our own development and trying to be better than we were yesterday. And as, as if that's not present, there's no way for us to continue to get better. Like we, we immediately plateau. Is, is that kind of where you were thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, our body, if we even just look at our body and the systems that our, our physiology has set up, it's really easy to see that error is actually a really good thing. And I'll give one example, which is HRV heart rate variability. And for those who don't know, that's just the ratio between really the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system and which one's on at any particular time. And we actually want HRV or we want our heart rate to be more variable. That actually indicates a healthier body, right? Which is very similar to error. More error might be a good thing. And what I mean by that is that when things are too predictable, they're too stable, there's, um, in terms of HRV, usually too much of a stressor, too much of a sympathetic tone. The body is constantly in fight or flight. However, when it's able to fluctuate between relaxed and on and sympathetic and parasympathetic, that's actually more of an indicator of a healthy person. So I wonder if we can extrapolate that same topic or that same concept to error, right? Like instead of being afraid of error, instead of being afraid of making a mistake, pushing past our boundaries, we welcome it. We welcome that interplay between error and non-error. Is that, you know, am I drawing too, too far of a, is that too much of an extrapolation or what do you think? No, I, I, I have two thoughts. One back to the HRV is we use HRV as a a proxy for readiness or preparedness, right? And so it, it, it says to us that it's ready for a variety of potential activities. You know, if it's going to be really high intensity or if it's going to be low intensity, if it's going to be this, if it's going to be that. And so I think that really speaks to uh, the idea that differential and noise does the same thing. Like it, it's preparing us for maybe war, right? It's uh, with, with whatever, whatever's in the environment that day. And, um, you know, when you think about the idea that the opposite of that is actually trying not to be surprised by preparing for everything, and we don't want to be surprised, and we see that as a negative, um, I, I think that's a really big paradigm shift to say the best state we can be in is we're ready for whatever comes at us. We don't know what's going to come at us, but it doesn't matter, right? Versus I know it can be seven things, but if it's eight, we're in trouble, right? Uh, and so I think that's a, that's a good example. I was also thinking of posture, um, which, you know, we see everywhere that people lack good posture, which is also an idea that a signal, we would say the signal of posture is not a static uh, idea. You know, it is not you're not a statue. It actually looks like you don't have 
good posture if you look like a statue. You want to have good posture when you're walking, when you're uh, sitting, when you're writing or eating. All those things are going to require you to move different body parts and therefore to have some dynamic elements to posture. And so the traditional or like maybe the classical idea around posture is you just put somebody in a posture position and make them stay there so that they know that posture in that position. But because it's dynamic, what they actually need is like a way to find a range of positions that is acceptable. And if you were to put somebody in a good posture position, they may not be able to keep that pattern very well because there's not a great deal of meaningfulness to the body of why am I in this position? Is it for social approval? Or if I were to feed the the error of the posture that I'm slumped and I, I and my back hurts when I do that and my, oh, my neck, whatever. Uh, when, when we're in a bad posture position for a long period of time, we, we experience pain and and we want to get out of that position. So there's a really strong reason why I'm rewiring to a good posture because I don't want discomfort and pain associated with the bad posture. How do we decide on what that signal should be that we're trying to amplify? Mm-hmm. Because and I and I kind of struggle with that because one, what is the ideal signal? Are we modeling the ideal signal off of a professional athlete? Is that what the ideal jump shot is? And we're trying to create repetition so that the athletes get as close to that ideal signal as possible? Or is it that there is a nice, there's an ideal signal for each individual athlete and the idea is for them to ultimately get to that? But if we don't know what their signal looks like ahead of time, how do we go about creating noise to strengthen that signal? Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting point. So if you say at the end of the, the journey, we want them to be able to have a professional level jump shot. And you take a kid who walks around flat footed and, you know, maybe knows how to shoot, but has no idea how to balance, then you, you have to teach them like where you would jump in with them is to teach them balance. But if you have a kid who walks around on the toes and their heels never touch the ground and they're just have this natural knack for balance, you wouldn't start with there. They're already, they've already understood that concept. They've already, so you would start somewhere else with them, right? So is the idea then to just create a whole bunch of noise in a whole variety of ways, whether that's through the implements that we're training with, whether that's the exercises that we're using to train, whether that's the physiological systems that we're taxing, whether that's the language that we're using, right? These are all forms of noise that we can externally add to a system, which is an athlete, the environment, and the coach. Do we just keep adding noise until that athlete eventually figures out a bunch of different solutions to a problem and then through that figures out what's the best one for them? Well, I think you, you have to consider was, was that useful? Will that be useful in the future? 
in multiple situations is this solution that I found. Um, so for example, you could find a way people would say to cheat the test or to beat the system, right? So maybe it worked for that instance, but the reason it's called cheating the system is because you're really only cheating yourself because the idea behind that test or that screening or that thing was that you could help figure something out that would in the long run pay huge dividends because it would apply over time to many different applications. But if you just figure out a way to cheat the system, you have literally not improved. You haven't benefited from it other than temporarily. And, and maybe, you know, even if we were to talk about the, the education system as a whole, is the outcome of taking a test and scoring well on that test through rote memorization of facts and dates, is that really learning that's going to benefit you long term? Or is figuring out the framework of how to think in an engineering model or, or whatever it is, and maybe you didn't get a great score, but you actually understood the concepts, right? Absolutely. I think this is so fascinating because information is typically what education is trying to feed us, right? We want to shove as much information at you as possible. But in reality, information is actually something that prevents learning long-term because the second that your system thinks it's comfortable or that it understands something, it stops trying to figure out the problem, right? So if you think about something like um, an asymmetry, okay? So anytime something doesn't match what you think it's going to do or um, Here's a great example. The body has all these asymmetries. If you look at the science, the reason evolutionarily for those asymmetries is so that the body has to continue getting new information. It can't just rely on old information that it thinks it's figured out. And that allows the body to keep learning, which is completely mind-boggling. So the idea of continuing to add noise in different ways to me is that same phenomenon where we are trying to surprise the system constantly and not just feed it predictable information. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, so like the idea of stereo is right and left headphones. And if you are trying to, let's say, elicit a uh, frequency, for the brain to try to match the frequency is not what's in the right and what's in the left. It's the difference between the right and the left. And that's, what's full of a lot of information and what's actually the brain is trying to desire that we're hardwired for recognizing change. Uh, and specifically based on a prediction and an error around that prediction. So we don't learn much if we predicted something perfectly. We learn a lot if we predicted and there was variation, right? Absolutely. And there's actually something just to go off of that called the Zygarnik effect, 
which is when you can't predict something because we create, we crave control. We crave knowing the end of something. Um, so you think of like a cliffhanger in a movie, you're going to remember that more because your body or your mind is not able to close that loop. It wants to know information. And when you take information away or you withhold it, it actually remembers it more. There's something really cool that happens, and he mentions it in the literature, that happens when the information, volume of information, exceeds our working memory, and we can no longer process as it's coming in with our conscious thought process, right? It becomes a different type of process. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah. So the idea there being that you can kind of overload the working memory to bypass this idea of conscious control and thought, right? And I think this is sort of seen a lot in um, sports where choking is a thing, right? Where maybe golf or baseball, where you almost overthink a movement because all that information is kept in the working memory and you're trying to control a lot of things and you overthink and then your body kind of seizes up the system is so controlled that it's not able to perform a self-organized motor pattern, which it might actually be really good at. But the idea here with um, creating noise is to kind of overload that working memory so that you have no ability (laughs) to predict or understand or control. It goes right into sort of a subconscious self-organized behavior, which the research has shown is much more effective at producing performance, um, high performance results. Well, you mentioned something previously, you talked about choking in the, in the realm of performance, um, meaning not being able to perform up to the level that you've trained to, um, suboptimal basically. And then you also mentioned what do you fall back under pressure? What do you fall back to? And you said the signal. And I think that's really interesting because, um, if we talk about <clears throat> the traditional model for teaching movement is we sequence uh, the movement into the most efficient way to get from A to B or A to C. And we give that instruction, which is followed and is dependent that, that, that the, the individual becomes dependent upon the teacher or coach to give them the next step of the sequence. First of all, did I do that part of the sequence correctly? And then what's the next step of the sequence? Versus more of either a collaborative, less feedback relationship, or like a solo where you're out there practicing and learning by yourself. And we've talked about that a lot, how we both have experience being self-taught, is that you do a lot of trial and error. And trial and error has a, a, a huge cost because it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of energy and effort to stick with it because it doesn't often produce a lot of forward traction immediately. But through that trial and error, that process uh, produces a really strong sense of uh, competency because it is generated through knowing what each outcome or or what each variation leads to from an outcome standpoint and whether or not I wanted that. And so therefore, I know a million combinations that either will work or won't work in this situation. And that's highly robust to pressure. And so when we talk about differential learning, we are creating the conditions for them to explore 
success and, and, and lack of success uh, towards a desired outcome. And so inherently, it, it takes a coach out of the equation because you cannot coach that fast or that many possibilities. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's the whole idea behind autonomy and the best coaches can actually pull back and have a greater effect because their athletes now are the ones responsible for filtering the noise to find their signal, experimenting, and inherently it gives them more um, empowerment in their own process, which I think is ultimately what we're after as coaches, right? We want the athlete to be self-empowered. And I think that's a really interesting segue into one of the other main benefits of differential learning, which is what they found is it, it actually promotes in the brain almost a meditative state. Like, I don't want to use the word flow state because it's not exactly the same, but it allows them to be a learner to be in the moment and um, more present with what they're doing. And, and the way that happens is that differential learning through methods that are beyond the scope of this podcast, um, it increases alpha and theta waves, um, which is you know part of the hypofrontality hypothesis. And it, it actually also reduces activity in the amygdala. And if you know about the amygdala at all, that's a place um, in the brain that controls a lot of our anxiety and, and vigilance and um, self-judging. So when that activity is reduced, we don't have this need to, to judge ourselves or protect ourselves or our ego. And I think we're able to not judge our mistakes or view what we're doing in the moment. And it, it kind of allows us to, to stay present. What do, you, what do you think about that and how that could pertain to maybe our environment or the environment at large? Yeah, I think there's a huge implication for how differential learning affects our brainwave activity and the fact that we see uh, a greater composition of alpha and theta waves, just like in meditation. And, uh, and that idea that we're, we're not actually aware of how hard we're working cognitively, that we don't feel the cognitive strain as much. I think we're enjoying the process more and more present. And one of the interesting things that was noted is that in some studies done with differential learning and related to classroom is that students performed better, specifically in math, um, but also in other subjects, when there was five minutes of differential learning prior to the class. And I don't remember what the details were, if it meant that they were coming from PE maybe, or some other activity. Um, but differential learning, much like uh, in, in another study using uh, karate, that five minutes of meditation prior uh, improved learning in, in that realm as well. I think for my experience with my athletes, I think I've been using differential learning for years and didn't actually know that's what it was called until we came across this research. But I noticed the feedback from my athletes was the most positive when we were doing activities that would be considered differential learning. And even yesterday in a training session, I know um, athletes looked at the clock when we were done and it had been two hours since they'd walked in and they had no idea that that much time had passed. So that idea of flow where you're losing uh, a little bit of touch with time or a sense of time. And then also the activities were highly conditioning 
if we were to look at heart rate values, we would have said, wow, this was a lot of conditioning you did during that time. They also said, I wasn't aware that I was conditioning because I was really concentrating on doing the movement well and uh, kind of competing a little bit. So I think there's a tremendous benefit to, um, again, qualitatively being able to enjoy um, the learning process more and being effective more in that learning process. While I think we've done a really good job saying, let's everybody do differential learning, I don't know that that's actually always the case. Um, so do you wanna maybe bring up some situations where it might not be the best fit? Yeah, I was gonna say, I think part of our podcast is presenting both sides and then finding the gray. So we would be remiss if we didn't talk about you know, when differential learning might not be the, the best option for a particular environment, right? We always want to question and insert a little bit of doubt. The first situation that I kind of thought of was, you know, every, every single person um, is different in terms of their tolerance of noise, you know, whether you're a novice or an expert, you know, going back to last week's topic, but everybody is going to um, react to that amount of variation differently. Some people um, deal with chaos really well. Some people need a little bit more order, right? They fall on either end of the spectrum. And I even think that there was a podcast where Schulhorn talked about an athlete that he worked with in which he tried to apply differential learning and the athlete was actually overwhelmed. And so he had to kind of pull back. And I think this is where our skill as coaches and as practitioners really comes in, right? It takes a super trained eye to understand the nuance here and allow for individuality, but also um, not overwhelm the athlete, right? Like in thinking about how we can affect our athletes with differential learning, it's knowing, hey, does this, does this athlete deal well with a lot of chaos and novelty and variation and variety and all that? in terms of the feedback I'm giving them in terms of the cues that I'm using, or do they need a little bit more control? And that might be, that's going to be a sliding scale. And it might be something that changes even their development process. But I think both the individual's tolerance and then us as coaches, knowing how to um, be trained in what to look for and how they're responding are two situations where differential learning really needs to be scaled depending on the individual. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yep. I was thinking as you were talking about individual tolerance for noise, um, as it relates to flow, I've heard that flow is really optimal between a success rate of 30% and 70%. Have you heard that? No, I haven't. So that really there's this idea that if you're having more than 70% success doing something, it's maybe too easy and we need to add more difficulty. If you're having less than 30% uh, success rate, then maybe we need to uh, make it a little bit easier so you can have more success. And so I think in that case, what you were referring to with that athlete, it was like, I can't do 10 reps. I get burnt out. Let's reduce it to three reps of differential learning. And then it was more tolerable. So that was good. Um, I, I had a couple counterpoints. Um, one in the research, it, it looked at the more complex the movement is, the more differential learning is going to have a positive effect. Um, the less 
complex it is, meaning the more fine the motor skill is, or um, maybe more uh, simple that it is, it, you're not going to see the same benefit for the amount of time and energy you're putting into it. Uh, so maybe a classical approach would be better there. And then the other thing is if you don't have a lot of time, because differential learning can, um, it's a longer process. I think you have to have more patience. And I think it's getting into things that will maybe have a longer return or benefit in the long run. But if we just need you to figure out how to do this today so you can do this very simple, shallow activity um, on a short timeline, maybe classical is better. Maybe me just telling you what to do and then you following that instruction is, is the right thing. So um, I, I think that pretty much covered counterpoints. Do you, do you have any final takeaways or, or big thoughts from today? Yeah, absolutely. I think the big takeaway I have is that differential learning is definitely the model that we should all be trending towards. Now, I do think that in some instances, it might actually be really hard to implement and it might take it too far even. Um, but that's where we're finding the gray. I think the the, the most impactful um, thing I got from diving into this literature a little bit more was that, you know what, we actually are all engaging in differential learning every single day in almost everything we do. You think about how many times have you ever had the exact same day or the exact same repetition, even at walking? Every time you, you set out to do any motor skill or thought pattern, it's slightly different, but you can purposely introduce even more variation and more difference. And that's the art form. That's really where you're going to see the biggest bang for the buck because you're purposely trying to error, like you said, to sift you know, what's good information, what's bad information so that we can take apart the system and then put it back together again in a better way. So purposely injecting error and noise can really be a really good thing. And I've now finally grasped that noise and error are not negative terms in my vocabulary. What about you? Final takeaways? Uh, you know, I, I love the image of HRV and I think you did a really nice job with that, that it's a proxy for readiness. And also when we talked about meditation, that it also kind of set the stage for learning. And um, I think a lot of that is just creating an openness to um, some of the unexpected, uh, maybe surprising things, maybe um, unanticipated, that there's going to be predictions that I'm going to make, and there's going to be things that are different than that. And I've practiced through differential learning a, a variety of, of outcomes that, that I wasn't necessarily fully prepared for, but I figured it out. And when I figured it out, I took that into my signal and I created a stronger skill or a stronger, more robust system. And so I'm very comfortable taking this into a high pressure situation, or I'm comfortable taking this into a new area. And a lot of people are having transition with COVID or with, um, you know, just changing careers or who knows what all these uh, things that people are experiencing. And it's really cool that if you've gotten to where you are using a more of a differential learning model, then it's pretty cool mindset you can have embracing maybe chaos or something lateral. Absolutely. I, 
I think you're hundred percent right in that we can all um, apply differential learning. Um, and we do, as I mentioned, but I think that what's going to be really fascinating is actually getting somebody on here who is actively practicing this and is studied in differential learning, which is going to be the topic and guest for our next episode. But we'll uh, we'll leave the listeners in limbo so that they have to come back and actually listen to episode three. But yeah, we're going to change up the format, take that same idea of lateral thinking and find somebody who's actually applying differential learning in their setting with um, high performers at uh, a professional level. Any last thoughts before we sign off for the day? Uh, yeah, I, there was, um, we've gotten a little bit of feedback from our first session, uh, from our first podcast. And I thought it'd be really cool. Um, I I would just like to encourage people to use the email or however you want to do this, but give us some feedback, not just on the podcast, but on the stuff that we're talking about and say in my domain, these are the things that came to mind. These were the examples that I thought of. This is maybe where I would I would have used these examples or I have these questions based upon my experience and my, and, and I would just like to add to the conversation because uh, we really do just want to continue to learn and to make this better. And, um, and your voice, I think would be really cool to add. So like Travis said, send those instances that you've used what we're talking about or you've noticed them to ride the gray gray with an e at gmail.com and we would love to bring them up or even maybe have you on our podcast um in the future and uh with that being said i think we'll we'll sign off and we'll catch people next time all right as usual as usual it's been two podcasts If there's anything that we can do to help you, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, please don't hesitate to reach out to us at ridethegray, gray with an E, at gmail.com. If nothing else, we'll catch you next time. Wear a mask and find a way to ride the gray.